Welcome to the From Battle to Business podcast. In this podcast, business coach and fellow veteran Dean Van Dyke will bridge the gap between service and civilian life, helping guide veteran business owners to supercharge their business and unlock hidden profits. You wouldn't go into battle alone, and now you don't have to in business. Let's get to it. Hey folks, well, welcome back. This is From Battle to Business with your host, Dean Van Dyke. And today we've got a very special guest and I think it's very timely that Gene Moran is joining us. And he's from Capital Integration, an award-winning defense lobbyist and consultant. He's a retired Navy captain, former corporate lobbyist, and now he guides companies through complexities of federal sales and client. his client results measure in the billions of dollars. Uh, he understands and interprets the Washington, D.C. environment for primarily defense companies. His best-selling books reveal some of the many forms of influence readily available to all, but about which most have no idea that they exist. He's a retired captain of U.S. Navy ships and a proud corporate refugee. He finds professional fulfillment guiding and advising senior executives to success in Washington, D.C. Let's get to it. Well, welcome back. This is From Battle to Business with your host, Dean Van Dyke. And today I'm fortunate to have Gene Moran, a retired U.S. Navy captain who is also an award-winning defense lobbyist and consultant. Welcome, Gene. Hey, good to be with you, Dean. Well, it's great to have you. So in 60 seconds or less, tell us who you are. 60 seconds or less. Well, today I'm somebody who helps defense companies in Washington, D.C. I help them navigate a very complex process. Mm-hmm. Uh I'm a father, a grandfather. Uh, I, I love being uh, an entrepreneur, a businessman in this phase of life. Uh, prior to this, I was a corporate lobbyist for a while, and I served uh, 24 years on active duty, serving in six ships uh, at sea and then also in D.C., and that, that's where I learned about what I do now. Well, that's a very interesting background. Of course, I know somewhat of what you did as a captain in the Navy, and uh, so thank you for your service and sacrifice. Um but one of the things that's kind of a topic today, and um, and I just want to dive into that because it it matters to me, and I'm sure it matters to a lot of the audience that we've got too, is but help us understand why the U.S. cares about what's happening in Israel, what's happened um, back in October, and what's the, you know, what is, what's that driving force? It's a great question, and it's uh, it's actually pretty complex uh, in, in my from my perspective. Um, I've been fortunate enough to travel around the world, as as I know you have, uh, after my or at the end of my active duty time. So, including all the ship travel, uh, I also ran the Navy Senate office, where I did uh, congressional delegations around the world with uh, members of Congress. Uh, I've been to over sixty countries. I've seen a lot of different systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I was escorting members of Congress, we were interacting with uh, the ministerial levels of other countries. I feel like I have, have seen other governments in action. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced uh, we have the best one around uh, by a wide margin. I am as well. Uh, I, I think we're being tested around the world. Israel and, and Gaza is just one uh, m- more recent example. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we're recording this now in uh, early December, uh, we're we're a couple of months into a pretty aggressive uh, fight. Uh, it's clear that there are uh, non-state actors at, at the at the heart of this, but uh, so too is Iran, mm-hmm. and there are other uh, hot spots around the world: uh, China, Taiwan, Russia, Ukraine, uh, North Korea, uh, what, things happening in South America. 
Saudi Arabia seems to be involved with uh, various relationships of, of interest. Uh, I, I think all of those sort of relationships are tugging at us, mm-hmm. us being the U.S., and uh, seeing how we respond. And and I, I, I believe we have uh, kind of reached a point in the U.S. where we've kind of forgotten about what it took for the world order that we've known for the last 75 years to, t- to take hold. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean the global sacrifice of World War II and what it produced in terms of stable relationships uh, around the world. I, I think people miss some of the uh, connective tissue there. Mm-hmm. And so if if this uh, Israel and Gaza uh, conflict were to escalate and the U.S. were to get more involved, uh, or if uh, Russia-Ukraine uh, were to escalate to a degree where the U.S. was was more actively involved, uh, I'd, I'd say today we're we're offering funding. We're not we're not truly right. involved. Uh, I think it, I think things would would look different. Uh, unfortunately, I also think that if we were uh, seriously stressed in multiple directions, uh, readiness cracks would quickly reveal. Uh, because our military has suffered from 20 years of war in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the clear and documented degradations of readiness are, are just beneath the surface. I I, I would whole, wholeheartedly agree on our readiness and our capabilities. I think it's... Um, my son is currently serving on active duty. I won't go into where and what, but, um, just knowing some of the things that, you know, he's experienced not only when he was in Afghanistan, but then coming back, uh, our current state of readiness is a concern. And I think, you know, with recruiting challenges that we've had, uh, with the equipment challenges we've had, I mean, even in the Navy, I think the Navy's, uh, doing when I was in standard deployment, it was six, seven months. And now I've, I'm seeing nine, 10, and sometimes even 12 months being deployed. So it's got a, that's a huge strain on families and service members. And then the, the, uh, the flip side of the deployment is that maintenance cycle <clears throat> where ships and submarines are, are well behind what the standard is. Uh, and this is documented by the uh, GAO uh, it's documented in reports to Congress from uh, the service secretaries within the Department of Defense. Uh, it is not a secret within industry that mm-hmm. uh, the readiness is being uh, tested uh, in the form of what the industrial base can provide and uh, how to keep up with uh, the, the, the depot level maintenance, the heavy maintenance that has to take place periodically. We are We are in quite a hole that will take years if not mm-hmm. a decade or more to get out of and uh, i think that's that's highly problematic no i would agree and you know on the naval side when you start extending ships whose life is technically um i won't say expired because they're still you know still sailing seas but when you extend life like that but then they don't get that depot level maintenance and shipyard maintenance it's that operational tempo is going to have to suffer at some point. And, and the, and the <clears> costs uh, associated with uh, typically the, the band-aid approach is the more expensive approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look to the coast guard, just as an example, 
they they are forced to run their ships well beyond their uh, expected service life. Mm-hmm. It's, it is common to see Coast Guard ships over 40 years old. Uh, that's not that's not a healthy place to be, and a uh, a forward deployed naval force just can't be operating with that sort of uh, weakened capacity. Mm-hmm. Well, then you know, and so you mentioned Ukraine and and Russia. Uh, it seems, uh, based on some of the readings that I'm doing and some of the resistance in Congress, that the funding is running into. Um, and now it seems like the offensive in, in Ukraine is stalled. Um, do you see, is there a way out for Congress to resolve that funding issue and to continue funding? Because I even read that, you know, Europe is is struggling with funding or continued funding. Um, and without that funding, I don't, I don't even want to speculate what could happen. Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of aspects to it. Uh, one is, you know, what does Ukraine need? And, and mm-hmm. uh, as of again mid December here, early December, you know, we're up to about a hundred billion dollars that the U.S. has provided, either either in in funding so that they can buy from elsewhere or in uh, material and ammunition that we've provided that we mm-hmm. we typically are able to pull off the shelf at least initially. Uh, the uh, you know there's a cycle to uh, warfare in that environment such that there's mm-hmm. a, a winter phase where you know right. things are sort of forced to come to a come to a stop or at least a, a lull uh, but if 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 we uh you know don't commit adequately this can just be a prolonged stalemate mm-hmm. uh, there there have been successes on on ukraine's part they have regained territory as of today they they have uh apparently won the, the black sea part of this uh this oh. fight in, in, you know, the use of uh, uncrewed uh, surface vessels uh, you know, to help take take down uh, naval capacity. But, uh, you know, the army would tell you that, hey, if you want to hold ground, you need to put boots on the ground. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't think the U.S. is ready for that today. I'm, I'm not sure that we ever will be. I, I think the, the Middle East experience uh, has has left such a bad taste in, in the in, in the in the mouths of our citizens that you know they were sold a bill of goods and it took 20 years to get out of there i, I just don't think we'll rush back in uh, but the the you know potential impact if russia were to take that territory uh it it affects uh, global grain markets it affects mm-hmm. uh, international uh, trade uh, it's either oil or gas or both types of lines are, are running through uh, you know, parts of the uh, parts of that part of the continent uh, th- that affect economies, and uh, and so I I've I struggle to see why the decision is so difficult. Uh, in Israel, uh, our closest ally in the Middle East, uh, they've asked for fourteen billion dollars as of today, and we can't we can't seem to get a vote on that. I understand how Congress works, and that you know, this is a point of leverage where perhaps the border something can be done on our southern border um i think you know we have a a border problem on the south side mm-hmm. that is decades in the making and it's 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 not one administration who's responsible for it it took it took a long time for it to to be this this bad so 
what Congress will often do is legislate to an end state that's not possible to get to. And, mm. and rather than just take some incremental wins moving in the right direction. So right right now, the standoff is over uh, this this point of leverage. And, uh, you know, we're playing with certainly people's lives. You know, if 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 members of Congress had to go live in the circumstances that we're expecting other uh, democratic countries to live in who are suffering like this, I think they would see it differently. But to most Americans, those kinds of uh, global engagements are an abstraction that, that mm. they don't have they don't have close connection to. Part of it's because we have this voluntary military force, the all-volunteer force. And so only a very small percentage of the citizenry gets to see this up close. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, until there's better awareness, uh, we, we may make a bad decision to not support in the way that we should, and it will have a poor outcome. Well, I think we've, <clears throat> you know, I mean, like I grew up, I had two brothers, one brother in Vietnam, one served during the Vietnam era and, you know, experienced that growing up. Uh, and then we had the Persian Gulf War and then we had, um, you know, 9-11. And I think, I think we've lost, in my opinion, you know, when 9-11 happened, you saw a lot of people pull together and the will to fight was there, but you're right. After 20 years and the way we left, um, you know, the folks that took power, the Taliban played the waiting game and ultimately took power again. And I think that that's where folks are either a, you know, don't want to go back into that situation uh, because is there an end game, right? When the Persian Gulf happened, I believe general Schwarzkopf said, we you know we're not going in until we've got over absolutely overwhelming force um and and i think we were surprised by the actual there was some resistance but there was a lack of i think the type of resistance we were expecting and i think that there's i don't think the the us has a i guess a stomach for more conflict um so one of the things I know you're you're well versed in is is that nexus of national security, politics, and foreign affairs. How do these all intersect, so to speak? And you've talked you've touched on a little bit with the grain, uh, the oil, and the gas that flows through Ukraine, um, but yet a lot of folks aren't aware of that. Yeah, I think similarly, uh, many are not. Well, they became more aware during COVID. Uh, you know, our international uh, supply lines of trade uh, have been well understood by the Navy and the mm. Merchant Marine for for centuries, uh, uh, <clears throat> certainly decades, that so much of our trade passes, you know, by ship around the mm. world. Uh, those, uh, those, uh, the desire to get to these highly efficient, just-in-time supply chains, you know, through the uh, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, they they certainly helped drive down costs in the U.S., but we didn't realize the risk that that came with that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the the flip side of that is that 
today we're we're talking about we want to onshore all the supply chains we want everything to be made in america well the reality is we're not able to make everything in america we we have a lot of resources but we don't have all of the resources and the reality is that china has a lot of resources you know particularly rare earth material mm-hmm. it's so critical to uh electric vehicle production you know battery production mm-hmm. uh semiconductors you know they they do have things that we need so to to say that they're the the new big enemy uh, i i see that our policy is quite conflicted uh we want we want the low cost uh, goods uh but you know dod is preparing to go to war by you know 2027 with china over taiwan personally i i question when that day comes are we are we really prepared to defend taiwan i know i know we say we are and that's our stated national policy but watching how we're behaving again with our closest ally in the middle east israel and watching how a a european democracy is being allowed to suffer for now 2 years um, will we jump right in i'm i'm not convinced uh, the war gaming suggests that uh uh, China, uh, U.S. defense of Taiwan would be quite ugly. We we might win in the end, but it'll be it'll be with some serious losses that we have not seen since World War II. Um, with an all volunteer force and the and the the disconnectedness of the, uh, the citizenry from world events, um, I I question it. Uh, I watched this uh, these behaviors as a part of my work. Uh, I advised defense companies on opportunities and mm-hmm. you know what international events might mean to them where there where there could be uh, a way for them to provide a solution or help the government save money uh, you know that's that's why i need to be uh, pretty well versed in this to to be able to have those sort of ongoing conversations so how do you think so you know i i think i do a pretty good job of staying in tune to what's happening in the world because i you know i've like you, I've been to war-torn countries. I've seen the devastation that it causes. And um, how do you think those of us outside of the military or that have served, I mean, I'll say it, we're so addicted to social media, but yet we don't really truly understand what's going on in the world. How do we change that? I mean, do we change it? Well, um, I think we we are self-selecting our news sources mm. now in a way that wasn't possible previously. <clears throat> we also didn't know previously to what degree news was being controlled uh, and and filtered for us, you know, or curated in a way that it had the effect of filtering it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, traditional journalism has has changed. I believe uh, truth has been a casualty of this speed of the movement of information and a continuous uh, demand signal for for a news cycle. There's no longer a 24-hour news cycle. It's just it's just constant flow, right. and some of it, some of it's correct and some of it's not. Uh, when I ask defense leaders, I, I host uh, executive seminars and, and what I call a meet the ringmasters uh, event, where we bring <clears throat> a dozen defense executives in and, and I interview a few of them. But when I engage those kind of audiences on what they know about the uh, inter- state of international affairs. Uh, most are pretty uncomfortable 
trying to describe it because they mm. they know the contours of it, but they don't feel confident enough to describe it. And uh, I think those are some of the most you know, sophisticated people in our nation uh, who are leading you know de uh, defense and technology companies. Uh, if they don't understand it, there are many, many others who who mm. don't. Uh, so there's a, there's an opportunity there. I participate in a, a group in my community called the Navy League. I'm sure you're familiar with the Navy League. Mm -hmm. they, they are around the world. Um, but its its role is to uh, promote the sea services and help communities better understand what the Navy and Merchant Marine really do. Uh, other services have similar uh, outreach uh, organizations that they're not... Uh, they're not meant to, you know, co-opt anybody's mind. They're just meant to interpret right. what what is the value of having a, a military service. And I think when you have such a small percentage of the population serving on active duty, that gap of understanding is is pretty big. Mm -hmm. No, I would agree, and I think um, I would welcome the days of Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow to come back and. <laughs> and uh, I, I know that dates me a little bit, but um, <clears throat> having grown up with that and then watching the evolution of what we call, I think it's more entertainment than news. But um, so <clears throat> we have an election coming up, national one. Um, and elections, depending on what happens, tends to swing the direction of this country. Um, what do you think is the broad theme of this next national election that's coming up and, and what does that mean? I think the underlying theme is uh, it's time for generational change. Uh, and that's not necessarily about age on the part of either of uh, the current would appear to be front runner candidates. But I think uh, the, the population is changing uh, quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the younger generation, I'll say between age 20 and 35, uh, have only known a world that seems filled by uh, pretty poor decision-making on the uh, mm -hmm. on the international stage. And uh, they they want something more. And I think they're it's right for them to expect something more. And they, I think they have uh, a, 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 you know, good heads on their shoulders and, and have idealism that, that maybe has not been forged by uh, the, the reality of international conflicts uh, yet, but, but their, their parents and, and, you know, people before them were, um, you know, involved in a, a corporate lifestyle or, or perhaps they were in the military or in, in served served overseas in in, mm -hmm. in battle. Uh, what they've seen uh, in their twenty years of, of uh, you know young adulthood, or up, you know even up to thirty five years old, uh, it hasn't been impressive. And at the same time, technology is changing so rapidly and allowing for a better understanding of the world than you or I might have been able to have at that age. You know, think about you know, reading from the Encyclopedia Britannica and, you know, the pre-Google day, I, you yeah. know, I was 40 years old when Google, you know, became a thing. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that does date me, but it also gives me perspective mm -hmm. on what's evolving. 
And I, I think uh, that I, I heard somebody say this the other day, this is not my line, but I, I think there's something to it. And, and they said the first party that lets go of either President Biden or President Trump as their nominee will win this next election. Mm. So, of course, there are ideologies that they each are associated with. But I think underpinning that is a, is a need for generational change and just a new way of thinking about where this country should go. Mm. No, I I would absolutely agree. I think it's. I think to reduce that polarization that exists, I think we do need that a, a different voice, and um, and I think that that's, I think we need that pretty pretty desperately because I think there are some, like you said, there's been some decisions that have been made that, you know, my sons have grown up. I, my sons age or age from 24 to, um, I'm gonna probably get this one wrong, 33, um, but. Um, you know, and we have a middle one in between at 27. So yeah, 27 and 34. So, um, and it's interesting seeing the different dynamics, uh, between the 34 and 24 year old. And, um, but <clears throat> I know, I know we could keep, I think we could talk for a while on this topic, but I want to throw you some very hard questions before we wrap up. And these weren't hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually, these are probably going to be the easiest questions you've answered so far, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, no, it's, it's, it's better. I, I greatly appreciate your perspective and, and uh, it, you know, one of the things that you, you touched on is just the, how intertwined our economies are and how the lack of grain exports out of Ukraine impacts the, you know, my, my father-in-law, who's a farmer in the Midwest. Um, and, and of course, you know, oil, we could talk about oil for a while, but um so one of the easiest questions, I, I'll call it that, that you're going to answer is, what are the three books you'd recommend to my audience and why? I, I read a lot of business books, um, mostly because I, uh, I'm i in the business of advising businesses and mm -hmm. business leaders. And I've I've invested heavily in my own learning uh, to, to be uh, not just an average consultant, but to be an outstanding expert mm -hmm. in my field. And uh, I think that requires just continuous renewal. Um, sadly, really? sadly, um, you know, it's a documented fact that most Americans don't read a single book in an entire year. Uh, I digest books on audio by by Audible. Uh, that's my preferred way because I can I can consume it in a lot of different ways. Um, mm -hmm. You know, driving around or. Uh, <clears throat> just just while I'm doing chores around the house kind of thing. Uh, so for anybody who can process that way, I recommend that as a good way to increase your reading without having to, you know, sit down. And I, I've, I've never enjoyed laboring through a book you know, by, oh. by turning a page. Some people love that. I, it didn't it didn't resonate with me. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll rattle off a couple here that that I that I turn to when I'm advising clients There's one by. Um, uh, Dan Sullivan and Benjamin Hardy called 10x is easier than 2x. And it's about recognizing uh, things in your business where you you might spend a lot of time, but it's only producing a 2x result. And if you could strip away some of those 
overhead sort of chores mm -hmm. in your business, you could focus on the 10x things that, that not only are you really good at, but that produce uh, uncommon, you know, 10 times ROI. Mm -hmm. uh, many companies can benefit from a, a review of those sort of activities. Uh, another book by the same authors, uh, not coincidentally, uh, Dan Sullivan and Benjamin Hardy is called Who Not How. And that's also about getting your arms around why are you doing so much on your own? There are many ways that you can offload uh, onerous tasks or uh, things that you just don't need to be doing, mm -hmm. whereas somebody else can do it for you. And I, I joke now that, you know, the best tool in my toolbox is, is a checkbook. That that was not always the case. I didn't have the money to do that. You know, most on active duty are, are on a pretty tight budget. But when you get a little bit of discretionary income, you find that you can buy time back. Mm -hmm. and, and buying time is actually a great investment. Uh, sometimes it, it may seem like an expense, but it's really an investment. Um, the uh, the last book I'll suggest for anybody who's running a business is called Measure What Matters. And it's by a guy named John Doerr, D-O-E-R-R. -R. It is about uh, truly figuring out how to measure the performance of your company as aligned to a greater goal. And it's been used by many, many brand names that you all know, uh, uh, but it's a super easy book to read. Each of these books are among the only books that I've read twice. Um, and that's saying something. Uh, they are that powerful and can help you that much. Uh, and each have a, a couple of exercises you can do. Um, I don't. I don't try to read and digest everything in a book. I try to just take away some key nuggets. And I know mm -hmm. if, if I go through the whole thing, I'll, I'll, I'll walk away with something more. In each of those, I recognized I want to go back and read them again. And they're, they're just as powerful, if not more so, the second time around. So there's three for you. Yeah, it's interesting. When you do that, the nuggets you glean the second time around. And it yeah, I can absolutely agree with that. So where can my audience go to find out more about Gene and the amazing work you're doing? <laughs> well, thanks for that. I, I have a website, uh, genemoran.com, and uh, it talks about the uh, the kind of work I do. I've got a lot of mm -hmm. videos on there. I've got some uh, speaking engagements I've done where I talk about what I do. Uh, I'm pretty different in my space of uh, the defense industry uh, in that I, I work what I call both sides of the river, uh, the Pentagon and uh, Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. But uh, I understand that process like, like few others, and I, I try to describe it in ways on the website so that people can understand that there's there's a lot of help available and you don't always have to go in the the front door of the the government buyer in order to um, to exert influence and and to make your sale hmm. well that's awesome well the, the one thing i love to do is allow my guests to have the final word so i'll allow you to have the final word dean i, I appreciate it you know we live in a great country i i think about it a lot uh, typically to myself though. And I don't, I don't have a chance to articulate it, uh, to audiences enough. <clears throat> it's, it's, uh, it's something that most people undervalue. Uh, the older I get, the, the more I appreciate what we have and, uh, what was done by others for us to have it. Mm -hmm. Um, when, when people ask me, 
what what advice do I give to defense companies who come to me for help? I, I say think bigger uh, because um, there's so much opportunity in this country, uh, but you just have to reach for it and you know don't hold yourself back and take advantage. Those are some wise words, which I absolutely agree with. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on, Gene, and um, I can't wait to uh, learn more about what you're doing. And um, and I know you're doing great work in D.C., and so thank you very much. Thanks, Dean. Good to be with you. Thanks for listening. In order to help others, please subscribe and share this show up with other veteran business owners in your network. If you want specific guidance feel free to book a complimentary call with Dean at deanvandyke.com. Remember, you wouldn't go into battle alone, and now you don't have to in business.